1: I have news for you, Anders, about your favorite Dragon Ball Z character, Braino, who has no legs Uh or whatever. Um, (laughs) So his name is not Braino, and he does have – he can walk. He just uses – I don't know why he uses that, like, floaty chair thing. I think it's just a supervillain decadence thing of, like, I don't – walk sometimes because i don't have to right but he- for,
2: for for real quick for listeners who uh didn't listen last week i, I mistook uh that we're talking dragon ball z um and i mistook <laughs> Fr- freezy frieza 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 who is uh one of the bad baddies on dbz as it gets gone he is actually i thought he was named Braino because he's got a huge head <laughs> and he's got like a, a floating rascal scooter uh but apparently this this is I'm, we're getting more intel on on the character we i'm getting word anders that that's not true um you could
1: be forgiven for calling him braino because that actually would make more sense than what the characters in dragon ball z are named like um i am playing a dragon ball z video game right now that's what I have so much of this on my mind but uh, so he's named frieza his his father is named King Cold. His family is all named after refrigerators, and then his oh. underlings, his like henchmen, they're all named after stuff that you would keep in a refrigerator. But it's in Japanese, I think. So I don't, wow. like, I don't get the references. But I was reading about this, and like one of this guy's name is Kui, which means like Kui. cucumber, cucumber or something like
2: that. Damn. Is there some like old ass ad from the '50s of Ronald Reagan selling freezes great grandfather? (laughs) (laughs) That's where he came from. Actually, actually,
1: so that makes total sense. Because what I wanted to tell you is that I was, I was thinking about Brano quite a bit this week. And I got uh, curious and I like looked up the Wikipedia about him. And I was like, what, like, what is this? Like, where did this thing come from? What's the explanation? You know, sometimes you look up something like that and you're like, oh, it's based on another thing. And then you, it yeah. sort of makes more sense. I'm reading from the Wikipedia about Dragon Ball Z right now and about the characters. Frieza. Okay. So if you don't understand like what the plot line here is also is the reason he's like, such a good villain in Dragon Ball Z is that he's sh- like, he shows up on planet Namek, which is like, they're there for some reason to like do something. I can't remember. He shows up and he's like, um, Oh, I like, he's kind of got like a star Wars thing going on where he's like, yeah, I'm going to like take over this planet or I'm mm-hmm. like destroy it or something. Uh, and they're like, well, we need to use it for finding the Namek Dragon balls or something. But he's, his whole thing is like, no, the whole planet, this is like an object to me. And it makes sense now in light of what I'm about to read, the plot. Frieza, a broker who forcibly takes over planets to resell them, what? often rendering the planet's population extinct first, no. get this, was created around the time of the Japanese economic bubble. And was inspired by real estate speculators, whom the creator of Dragon Ball Z Toriyama called the worst kind of people. Cool. <laughs> like, I didn't I didn't realize. There was actually, this is uh, epic leftist based, whatever you know, I just thought Dragon Ball is using nonsense, but apparently, the no, the, the person who wrote this was imbuing it with, like, anti-capitalist meaning, which is a thing that people say about art all the time. It usually right. isn't true. No, totally. He's a fucking real estate speculator.
2: <laughs> oh, it's so cool. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, as we talked about on the show before, that was like, if you're, you know, American kid growing up in the 90s, Japan was just like this, like, basically, like, Oz like you viewed it as the Emerald City like all this technology was coming out of it and you thought it was like this utopian place but in reality it was like <coughs> the lost decade and there was economic strife and misery and stuff um I I feel like you could give you know maybe there are a lot of landlords who watch Dragon Ball Z in America but I feel like you could just uh tell them that like hey this guy is based on you and they would adopt frieza as their (laughs) mascot, not knowing he's supposed to be bad (laughs) and we could totally freaking trick them it would be good
1: that would be cool if he became a landlord icon and then like the guy who fucking collects your rent every month comes up to you in a floating wheelchair (laughs) he's like this is what the kids like right (laughs) uh i don't know why he how, why he used that because he is very physically impressive like clearly he fights throughout the entire rest of the
2: thing i mean he probably expends so much energy in those fights that you gotta chillax for the rest of your time i guess that makes sense because he's like his thing was
1: he 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 Turns into different forms of himself. He keeps like amping himself up. So when he's it, when he's just walking around, he's in like his weakest form, I guess. Yeah, and that's how he's able to have the energy to be in his strongest form. I don't know, fucking logic of Dragon Ball Z is very weird. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is podcast America, <laughs> a podcast that is not really about Dragon Ball Z, but it can be. I'm Jake Flores. That's Anders Lee.
2: Anders Lee here, <clears throat> charging up.
1: Brano. That's <laughs> a. Uh, That's, um, you're a braino, Anders. I don't know. Wow. Um, did you have something to say about being a braino?
2: I didn't. My brain couldn't come up with anything. anything. (laughs) I'm so modest, really. Um, you're charging up over there. He's
1: like, oh, I'm (laughs) going to come up with a take to put on the podcast. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's been quite a week, man. Um
2: Yeah. I actually got a good segue here. So uh Go right ahead. Frieza braino charges up his brain. It's a he, right? Yeah. Okay. Are we sure is Frieza non binary?
1: I looked it up, so he's he is identifies as male, even though he has the um the classical homophobic like villain voice. Yeah where he's he's gay and evil. But he's a guy,
2: and he doesn't have a cloaca. That I'm not
1: sure. (laughs) He has a tail. All the Dragon Ball Z villains have like tails that are also like kind of a cloaca. Like they can like suck. Like Cell sucks you through his tail, and that's how he like absorbs your power. I don't know. Jury's out on how
2: Frieza reproduces. Um. Well, you know, similar to how he charges up his brain. Um. Apparently, TikTok. Is similarly charging the the children's brains with uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, I don't know. If C- you saw this. C- yeah, that's how I'm how I'm using it. I should should probably say Semitism, But uh, <laughs> the candidate Nikki Haley for president in the Republican Party, she said in the debate uh, recently that um, watching a half hour of TikTok makes you seventeen percent specifically. 17% more anti-Semitic uh and more pro Hamas just from specifically 30 minutes of TikTok will get you that exact number. So I don't know if that means uh sixty minutes will get you uh quick brain add seventeen times two, uh thirty-four. Yeah. More uh, autistic. No, not autistic. Anti-Semitic. His uh, anti-Semitism level is at 34%. No. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah.
1: most powerful fighter in Dragon Ball Z is just powered by anti-Semitism.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. they. I mean, that was um, – we may have mentioned this before, but they they sent – the Nazis sent the Japanese when they allied – in world war Two, a, a booklet uh i think it was the old um what's it called the old anti-semitic tract about how the jews control everything and are evil and stuff and the and the japanese like tojo and his people read it and they were like these guys sound awesome how can we get these jews <laughs> on our side um so it kind of yeah it's kind of a, a yeah a weird that is kind thing. of what like that era
1: anti-Semitism is is being mad that like someone's too good at capitalism
2: right yeah and it it doesn't make sense if you because it was also like they control the banks but also all the communists are Jews so the banks are communist like it just it doesn't stand the test of basic scrutiny but uh, it was powerful enough to, to do some, some pretty nasty stuff and, you know, obviously hasn't gone away entirely, uh, but it is being <coughs> abused, of course, to conflate with uh, the state of Israel, um, which is what Nikki Haley's trying to do. Uh, this study is actually – it is based on a real thing. So this is uh, from Generation Lab. Uh, I don't know who the hell they are, but they um, – did a survey last month and they linked to in this Guardian article. Um, one of the the CEO of Kaggle, which is the world's largest community of data scientists. This guy, Anthony Goldblum, says, A new survey suggests TikTok is a meaningful driver of a surge in anti-Semitism. Spending at least 30 minutes a day on TikTok increases the chances of respondent holds anti-Semitic or anti-Israel views. Interesting how those are just or. It's just anti-Semitic or (laughs) anti-Israel. 17%. And comparatively, you only get up uh, 6% by Instagram and 2% for X, formerly known as Twitter. So uh, something special (laughs) is happening on TikTok, they're saying. Um, It's funny, like the company um, who did the poll... They have a, uh, some guy, um, there's a, or actually it's MarketWatch, which is like a, you know, a a data news firm. Um, The bureau chief said that this is not an accurate statement of the results of the survey, but like people are running with that and saying that that is the conclusion and, you know, I'm not a data scientist I, but i'd be I, very very skeptical that this is that they're talking about what we what should be considered anti-semitism and not just like questioning zionism the state of israel etc
1: yeah you know, that's obviously like what they're doing but uh, regardless how do you measure something like anti-semitism to that specific of a degree you know yeah this is it's 16 anti-semitic it's 17 and it's not 18 what <laughs> what is the criteria people don't fuck it like that as, as someone who went to college for a soft science as like a psychology and sociology major and all this stuff it, it drives me insane like when you see um people share statistics like this all the time and how like it gets passed off as just uh oh no it's someone in a white lab coat said that like Eating chocolate every day makes me 20% less likely to get cancer or whatever. I guess that's a hard science. It's just bullshit. But like, it's like, think about it for a second. This is impossible to quantify.
2: Right. Right. And you always see those. (laughs) Like, I've had a nickel for every time I heard somebody talking about whatever their vice is, and nothing wrong with having a vice. But if they're like, yeah, yeah, this beer I have every day, this is when it's going to keep me alive or something, or smoking exactly. 1.37 One point three seven cigarettes will make you live till eighty nine. It's just like you can you can come up with so C- much stuff. Cigarettes
1: are good for you, though. That is a side effect. <laughs> it's always like the person always starts an argument with like, "Well, the, a study proved or whatever." And it's like fucking. Do you know what colleges? It's like fucking waste of time where people go and then they like are there and then they like do a study and it gets published. But you can just do one about anything and. The, the legitimacy that's lended to a study that proved after the fact is like think about it for a fucking second it's unprovable shit it can only studies don't prove stuff they suggest stuff like most of the time you know so like yeah. it's proven that's like a huge like historical moment but most of soft science shit is just like oh, maybe there's a correlation between you know it doesn't fucking mean anything still drives me insane um, you know what is charged up though, like a Dragon Ball Z character. Is this fucking uh-huh. lemonade that's killing people at Panera Bread? Have you heard, heard about, about this?
2: I've heard about this. I saw a video of a young woman who uh was um she didn't know it had caffeine in it and she was like shaking and there's you know back and forth of like oh is she responsible? Is Panera responsible? Uh, but she looked like she was having a bad time. And uh, <laughs> I, I sympathize. Uh, you should know what you put in your body. It should be readily accessible. And, you know, I think there's something to caffeine Now that we're now that we're a science podcast that is I mean, it is physically addictive. And there's something that especially if you don't know you're drinking caffeine, you get that buzz and you're not thinking like, Oh, this is, ca- you know, this buzz is nice, but it's caffeine. So this is, this is bad. Uh, going to make me stressed out, but you just have the buzz. You're like, Oh, whatever this thing is, yeah. it's not caffeine. It's making me feel great. So I'm going to have more of these. And then you fucking die of a heart attack.
1: Oh, right. Because that's what happened is apparently it's very unclear that the Panera lemonade has caffeine. It's just all charged lemonade, which is like not a thing. And it has a lot of caffeine in it, like a fucking cold brew amount. And uh, the people that died <laughs> drinking it did that. They had like a few of them because there were people that purposely didn't drink caffeine for like heart condition reasons, but then did exactly what you're talking about. And we're like, this feels really good because <laughs> they didn't understand that they were like high and they had a few, which I don't know if you've ever done that. Uh, I, I'm, I I don't drink caffeine. I'm very sensitive to it, but every once in a while, like if I'm like, I need to get a lot of work done, I'll have one, but I did I've a few times in my life. I've like, hung out at a coffee shop and sort of continuously ordered coffee. Like it was beers. And it is, it, that'll fuck you up. <laughs> it's like really bad for you. I don't, yeah. I don't understand how, uh, it, it's considered such a mundane drug. It's a drug. It's, it's always struck me as weird. Like during the nineties with the dare stuff and like, don't do drugs. Cause there's just like a few drugs that are normalized. Like, normal normalized like it's considered like a good idea to drink coffee every day and if you ever take yourself out of it and and experience what it's like to not have a tolerance to it it's it's a heavy thing really fuck you up so you don't have caffeine at all i really don't i can do i can do i can do red bull i do red bull sometimes because somebody this might be bullshit science podcast. Well, <laughs> someone someone told explained to me one time that Red Bull, the reason Red Bull like does what it does is um they marketed it as having ta- like taurine in it, which is like supposedly a different version of caffeine that makes you feel like uh, up but in a different way. In reality, what's going on is that it has a fuck ton of caffeine in it and what the taurine does is actually it's like um kind of a mild sedative so it takes the edge off of the massive caffeine high it gives you and that's why you feel both high and not high or whatever when you when you take it like it it does give you the anxiety because the counteracting effect of the taurine is like uh chills you out or whatever and that works for me but like um if i go to like a coffee shop and i get an iced coffee which is how i like to drink it but it I don't specify like I want drip coffee, and I just accidentally drink a cold brew. I have a fucking anxiety attack lasts for like multiple days. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. like, I hate it. I don't understand why people like that, but you know, obviously, it's like their bodies working different for me. But I, for real, it's like worse than doing like meth or something. I don't like a blow or I don't
2: know. I fucking yeah. hate it. Well, it's weird because so I used to be a big cold brew drinker, and I would make my own. Uh, and then when I like ran out or it didn't have, it was like, you know, br- I would brew it for like two days sometimes. It was super fucking strong. And then if I would like go to a coffee shop, I would just get, God, I would, I would get so like peeved if I got iced coffee and not cold brew. Cause I was addicted to the, to the stuff. I mean, I would po- be polite about it, but i like, uh, you sure this is uh cold brew? Cause it tastes a lot like iced coffee. That. can Uh, you give me the stick lemonade that kills me
1: because i'm so
2: disappointed in this coffee (laughs) but like you can taste it if it's if it's iced coffee but now like i can't i so we went i went from cold brew to drip coffee uh and then i went uh for for um uh afi komen which if you are Uh, Jewish or dating or married to a Jewish person you may know is uh, a a celebration you do after Passover where you, after the Seder, you hide a gift and everybody looks for it. And we did this at my girlfriend's aunt's house uh, last Passover. And the, the gift was her aunt got a free espresso machine and it was hidden somewhere in the house. And my girlfriend bit her brother to acquire this espresso <laughs> machine. And so we now, we now have the espresso machine. And I'm realizing espresso is actually less powerful than a lot of drip coffee. So now if I have drip, I've gone down two tiers. So now if I have drip coffee, like I had it at your place a few months ago, I had a drip coffee before the show and I was just like wired and anxious. And I was like, I need to like meditate uh, before we record. And if I have a cold brew, it's like lights out. Like I can have like two sips and then I'm done.
1: Yeah. I don't practice that holiday you're talking about because I watch TikTok.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it just dissuaded me the watching. Jews have a
2: whole holiday <laughs> based around biting your brother.
1: I. It's crazy that someone would say that just about TikTok in general because, like, you can watch different shit on TikTok. Like a lot of it's just like ASMR. Like, oh, I watched like 30 minutes of of someone dropping marbles down a staircase. And now the Jews are responsible for the, you know, like what the fuck are you talking about? Um, I don't. Also, like, wouldn't you make that accusation more about like Twitter or something? Twitter is more like an opinionated place. I, I guess people put opinions on TikTok, but they're like dancing while they do
2: them. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it uh, Musk has, in my opinion. Given rise to a lot of <clears throat> anti Semitism, like actual anti Semitism. Uh, a lot of these people who buy the blue checks have weird theories about the way the world is organized, uh, but that does not matter as much as criticizing Israel and, you know, pu- and, and really presenting things from the Palestinian perspective, which you can do on on TikTok, for, from what I understand. I'm not a big user.
1: Yeah. I'm starting to try to put like, clips from our show on and stuff but i just i'm i'm old i don't like TikTok. i like twitter because you can yell at people and it's um it's a little removed like you don't have to be super present the way that you have to be to like be on camera and that you know i used to think that was like just a difference in like mode like types of like i've never been a an actor type comedian i'm more of a writer type but there are actor types around and i always thought oh those are the people that are like more into tiktok and instagram they like to be in front of the camera (laughs) oh yeah you're a thespian i mean fucking fucking clown that said
2: i don't actually i don't really know how to use tiktok
1: (laughs) (laughs) well maybe you'd be good at it though because you are good in front of the camera (laughs) You know what? We'll get, we're gonna get your TikTok Lord. off the ground. We're gonna make an Lord. anti-Semitic Anders TikTok. It's gonna be <laughs> great. Um, wow. but I was thinking about this recently quite a bit, and why like that is increasingly the vibe of the future and the new generation. Because I was watching that documentary about the Mother God cult.
2: Have you seen this shit? I have not watched it. I've seen the uh, I've seen the blurb come up on uh, Max, formerly known as HBO Max. And <laughs> bless
1: your soul for calling these things Max and H and X and shit like that. Because I don't. I will dead name apps. It, I don't fucking
2: care. <laughs> I feel like this is the opposite of dead naming. It's getting to the true essence. <laughs> um, but like,
1: uh, first of all. This documentary. It's on HBO. It's about it's about a fucking cult that cropped up in the last few years. There's been a few of these. There are like modern era cults. There's one called Twin Flames that started over like the pandemic over Zoom. It's like a fucking Zoom cult what? that people were doing on. You would have like Zoom calls with the people, and they would like you know, I don't something about the intimacy of a Zoom call led people to get into this shit where they got sucked into giving their money and and their mind to. Some strange person started thinking on twin flame. But uh but the Mother God one, first of all, first of all, let me just say this out loud as somebody recently moved to Los Angeles where people are into being outside and charging themselves with crystals and uh being hippie fucking freaks or whatever. There is not a the, The Mother God cult documentary is a more powerful weed deterrent than anything they threw at me when I was a kid. Whoa. Dare, you know, like there's a cartoon Lion, the cop comes to your school and he's like, don't do drugs because you can be an astronaut when you grow up or whatever. You know, believe in yourself. That's bullshit. None of that shit. Dare made me want to do drugs when I was a kid. It was the lamest fucking thing in the world, right? But watching these people at the end of their fucking rope, who are all just like ponytail guys and like weird moonbeam women, uh, move to a house in the desert to be, to worship some lady from Etsy. And like, it just in real time, I, it it really, it reminded me of being stoned at someone's house that I like didn't want to be there to begin with. But now I'm stuck. Heavy vibe. Uh, it sucks. <laughs> Very depressing. But what I found interesting about these people, though, is that the way their cult formed is, um, you know, first they all got together and they were like, we could see stars or whatever, you know, whatever. Normal cult shit, right? Then the MLM stuff started happening. They're like, Oh, we got to sell something. So they start selling like tinctures and shit like that. Sure. Totally normal. We've all seen this before. Right. But the interesting thing that they got stuck on was um, live streaming. They, they sort of had this spiel at one point about how like the, the beauty of live streaming is that like, instead of like, you know, putting like limited sort of stuff out there where we put our message out there and do pamphlets and stuff like that. They were like, Every moment of life should be transparent, and if you're streaming constantly, then this like so, you know this, there's this beauty and like honesty about it or whatever. And uh, obviously, they're a psycho weird cult, so you know don't like read into what they're saying too much and and take it with a grain of salt and don't do that. But like, I think that they tapped into something that is kind of happening right now. And the reason, like, Zoomers and stuff, like, like watching 9 million hours of a person streaming or streaming themselves is a thing that everyone also is allowed to do is, like, something real weird that hmm. uh, th- that this, people are only going to have more of an existential need for. And I, I was saying this because I, I realized, I was thinking about this, I was thinking about why I don't like streaming when I was watching this. And I realized the reason I'm a comedian is because it's a controlled amount of time that you get to be connected to people. Like you get to write everything and plan it and then go, okay, for 10 minutes, I'm going to do the thing. And then you get off and it feels good to get off stage and be like, okay, I had agency over when we were doing the thing and when I was being like sort of vulnerable in public. And then I go back and I uh, like that part of it makes me feel like as a slightly, you know, insecure person or whatever, like, oh, I have some agency over this. Can I control? People don't want that anymore. They want to just fucking turn it on and like just like, it's like we're like fiending, like the drug of human connection has been dried up and we're like, no, just scrape it out of the bottom of the fucking tin can. Like, I want to do it all the time
2: now. Hmm. Yeah, so there's just kind of like lightning in a bottle with live comedy that can't really be replicated on online. I sound like a fucking boomer talking about this, but like, it is true. There's something like this. The, the dynamic in the room is something that's like, can be really hard to get to this magic uh, lemonade moment. But once you do it, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, and most comedy is not like that, but it w- once you get to that point, it's like, there's nothing better than that. And it just doesn't compare to, to streaming.
1: I think that streaming, like the appeal of it is like, instead of having that all at once, you're like, what if I just had a little bit of it all the time? So it's almost like vaping mm-hmm. or something. How yeah. you like, you just do it all day, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Which I'm, I, I'm saying it out loud and I'm like, this sounds horrible to me, but that's cause I'm <laughs> fucking chuggy and old. Like I'm not a young person anymore. And so th- th- that probably actually in a lot of ways sounds appealing to young people who live in a world that, you know, just hits them differently or whatever. Right. I don't want I want coffee flavored coffee. I'm Dennis Leary. <laughs> I want lemonade that kills you flavored lemonade. <laughs> uh, Give me my suicide lemonade.
2: Do we know is it just a lot of caffeine that's in there? Is there some other chemical? Is there ketamine?
1: It's, no, lemons, water, sugar, and a fuck ton of caffeine. Okay. <laughs> and it's not listed. Like it's not like on the menu. It didn't say or it says it in very small letters or something. It's caffeinated. So it's like fucking killing people. oh man don't (sighs) get the lemonade
2: don't do it don't do it don't do it um Um. well on that note (laughs) we're talking uh we've been talking a little bit about the situation in uh, palestine israel and uh we had some big news last week very positive thing from our vantage point uh at least for the movement in the United States for pal- for Palestinian solidarity uh, and uh, socialism and labor unions uh, kind of coming together. The UAW has announced its official support for a ceasefire. Um, and, you know, we're going to get into why that is significant, why it's that's more significant than me calling for a ceasefire, or this podcast calling for a ceasefire, or, or a socialist organization calling for a ceasefire, what this actually means for uh american foreign policy american labor and uh the rest of the world and and american imperialism zionism etc um there's a great article by our guest mindy eiser in in these times magazine uh we will link to that in the description and uh, we got to talk to to mindy about this this very question so um i guess without further ado let's go to the tape
1: let's do it Okay, we are now joined by Mindy Eiser. Hello, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, Hi, so you are a peace activist and labor organizer. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, can you catch us up on what's going on with the UAW?
0: Yes. So uh, what is going on with UAW is a lot. They have had a very great big year. Um, first, starting with a reform caucus, won um, uh, in a very, very small margin to take over the union. Uh, it's now being led by this guy, Sean Fain, who rocks. Um, they just won some really um, exciting contracts at the big three. They just announced a plan to unionize um, the rest of the non-union auto industry. And then last week, they announced that they were joining the call for a uh, ceasefire. So, um, you know, an end to the war on Gaza. They're the biggest union to do that. Um, And it's, it's really, really exciting.
2: Yeah, that was definitely big news. I, I know a lot of people were, were encouraged by that calling, coming out for a ceasefire. Um, and this is, you know, coming in the wake of course after Sean Fain took over. Uh, it, it, can you tell us a little bit about the process of getting the UAW to to come out for that? And, and is this at something that would have happened, say, you know, six eight months ago before Sean Fain was in leadership?
0: Um, I mean, I can't say definitively if the. The guy who was the president of the UAW prior to him, I think his name was Ray Curry, would. But I, I would, if I had to guess, if I had to put money on it, if I were a betting woman, I would say that no, uh, the UAW under his leadership would not have come out um, in favor of a ceasefire. I think Sean Fain, um, one, is a different kind of leader in that it's a much more democratic union right now. They're, they seem to be a lot more responsive to uh, the membership, uh, which is huge and amazing and what all unions should be. And then also, I think he just has a different kind of vision around um, unionism in general and what unions can do and what they can be. And more than just a vehicle for you know job security and wages and benefits, they can Transform our lives, and he kind of, he kind of always talks about this about how part of our fight is not just um, to make more money or to have good contracts, but it's to be able to live um, and like to be able to like have a life outside of work. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, obviously, but when I saw and heard about their call for a ceasefire, I thought about him always saying like this is about. Like the right to have a life, not in like a, you Mm. know, abortion way, but like the (laughs) right to like live and thrive. And I think relating to Palestine, you obviously can't live and thrive if you and your neighbors and your entire city and world are being, you know, bombed repeatedly.
2: Right. And it's been interesting to see you know, the, the, the discourse surrounding the composition of the UAW. There are a lot of um, grad students who have joined in, in recent years. And so a lot, a lot of critics were sort of quick to to point to that as a reason for the ceasefire. But there's also a huge contingent that is uh, Arab American, especially in places like uh, Michigan, states in the upper Midwest. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the, the membership as a whole feels about issues of, of foreign policy particularly uh, Palestine
0: well look I haven't seen any kind of internal polling about UAW members and what they specifically think about the war on Palestine and a ceasefire but we do know that the vast majority of voters or eligible voters in this country support a ceasefire and UAW members are you know, voters or eligible voters. Um, and so we can assume that they too feel that way. And I've also seen the criticism about, um, grad workers making up a big portion of the UAW, um, and being a large portion of like the most outspoken or, um, involved UAW members. Um, And I get that. Um, And I think that there's probably some truth to that. But I think that's okay because graduate student workers are annoying sometimes. And they also work and they also pay union dues. And they're also allowed to like you know, push their union to act a certain way. And I also think, like you said, there is this huge history of um, the UAW in Michigan, um, in Detroit, in Dearborn, where there's a huge population of Arab workers. And there was a caucus in the union in the 70s of Arab workers who really pushed the union to take action around Israel-Palestine stuff. And they didn't um, at the time. Uh, These workers were, you know, ignored and now it's different. And I think who knows if what what happened today or what happened this week or last week, whatever. I mean, what happened in the present moment would have happened um, had these workers in the 70s not sort of done their fight. Um, And I think it just shows that sometimes it takes a really, really long time to see justice and see for people to make the correct choice. And like, also look, the UAW is not the only union that's called for a ceasefire. The national nurses union has called for a ceasefire. Those aren't graduate students. Those are nurses. Um, Mm. the international union of painters and allied trades called for a ceasefire. Those aren't graduate workers. Those are fucking construction workers. And like, yes, there's sometimes, um, a disconnect between, union leadership and the rank and file. And that's true regardless of the issue. And there's never, ever, ever going to be, you know, 100% agreement on any issue. And that includes, you know, contract fights and stuff about wages and benefits. So I think Sean Fain is listening to the members and he's probably also listening to his conscience and saying like, look, I I was elected to lead and part of leading is making hard decisions sometimes. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah. That whole criticism of the, the, the grad student sort of, uh, intelligentsia aspect of this whole formulation, I think is very cynical. I don't think that, that the people applying that criticism would uh, do so on their own side. If, if, uh, you know, if the situation was in the opposite way, it's, uh, it's an appeal to some sort of snobbiness. I think,
2: (laughs) Right, and it's not like a a bad thing. Uh, in most, I mean, I I understand drawing the line at uh, like podcasters joining the UAW or something. But I think in a, in a lot of cases, as we've talked on the sh- about on the show before, they contribute. Uh, they're able to you know provide information, and they they you know work in a setting that involves a lot of research and stuff like that. So that that can help the union, in, in a lot of cases. Um, but I was wondering if you could. Oh sorry, would you want to? I was to say just
0: going to say it's just like cynicism and people being haters. Like why yeah. can't you just be happy something good is happening in like our horrible, horrible world? Like just like <laughs> take the win. It's good and cool
1: it also just it reeks of like a culture war sort of deception and manipulation you could easily imagine a situation in which it was to the advantage of uh, the status quo to admonish the workers instead of the you know the grad students in any situation there's all you know the, the, the these people don't understand what exactly. you know
0: Right. Yes. It's, it's like oh the PMC a- is opposed to war because they've read so many books but like the average worker can barely string two words together and they're just a big dumb dumb idiot. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. Um I guess yeah the reason that that question is so interesting to me also is because I mean uh I you know the the idea of like unions like trade unions get, sort of endorsing stuff like um, like a ceasefire in Palestine to, it seems classically to be the, the real goal of the, uh, the larger, <laughs> larger thing at hand here. Um, it's, that's why this is something to keep your eye on. Uh, th- and this, this kind of classical formulation of um you know, what you might think of as sort of an intelligentsia or like a vanguard situation that this has worked in history before. This is, this is kind of echoes a formulation of like something that could be, uh, you know, pretty good is it, it's historically worked to have like everyone in a labor movement bringing their thing to the table. And uh, that includes the, you know, the workers in mass, but also includes leadership, and it's not bad. We're not in conflict with each other, I think. Uh, when we, you know, come together and put the whole thing together and, and take trade unionism and make it political, I think that's good. I think that's why they're, they're attacking us so cynically.
0: Right. Well, I think it's a question of, and this is a question that's, you know, plagued the labor movement for a long time. It's what do you think a union is for? Is a union just for, like, a this like small group of workers in a workplace and like their wages and benefits or is a labor movement about that? And also like the power of the working class and the health of the working class and the future of the working class. And I think it's the second and that's a more complicated proposition. And there's a lot of contradictions there And it's a lot more challenging to think about the way forward when we're thinking about a labor movement like that. But the alternative is not much of a movement at all. It's just like, you know, an association that allows you to like have a meeting with your boss and bargain a contract. And I don't want to discount how important that is. But to me, it's not the full thing. Right.
2: Yeah. I think totally. a lot of it comes down to people just having different perceptions of how social change happens and, and what role you know your economic station uh, plays in that. Um, but something you write about in the in these Times article is uh, Mark Diamondstein, who I believe his, his name is said, is uh, uh, part of the AFL-CIO Executive Committee, which we should note, uh, AFL-CIO is not a union, but it is a, a federation of unions. Uh, and he is... Uh, I believe the only member of the executive committee who's who's open for a ceasefire, openly saying that the AFL CIO shouldn't should endorse a ceasefire. Um, why is that a heavier lift? Uh, getting the AFL CIO to come behind that, and and can you tell us a little bit about the the history of their role? You know, we, we've um, discussed on the show before. How, you know, some people refer to it as the AFL-CIA for past, uh, you know, involvement in advancing US foreign policy in places like Central America. That was a long time ago. But um, what is that dynamic like? And and what do you think it would take to get the AFL-CIO on board?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he is like so brave. And I I really admire him. I have a real soft spot for postal workers. My mom is a retired letter carrier. um, And it's Really, I think, obviously, we know it's hard to be the only person in the room saying something. Um, And he's saying something that's quite unpopular in the space that he's in. And he's also Jewish, and he writes about, he's written about being Jewish and why that informs his uh, beliefs about Israel and Palestine, which I think is both, you know, really beautiful and relatable to me, and also... Gives him a little bit of coverage, unfortunately, because we also know that people are constantly called anti-Semitic if they um, support a ceasefire. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the AFL-CIO, like, I mean, maybe I am naive. I don't think there's some huge conspiracy. I just think, like, they have a heavily vested interest in the status quo and in their relationships, Um, in the White House and in Congress. And they don't want to jeopardize those relationships, because in their mind, they, you know, like you said, they're a federation of different unions, they have a lot of um, different members to represent. Um, Their core focus is on workers, you know, wages, benefits, job security. And so I think their thought process is probably like, why would I go out on a limb on about this thing, it has really nothing to do with us.
2: Hmm. Well, I'm curious about the, the leadership of the, the AFL-CIO. I know there was uh, Sarah Nelson. Uh, she, her name has been, uh, I don't think she's the current president, right. Of, of AFL-CIO at somebody else.
0: No, the current president is Liz Schuler. Um, she comes okay. out of the IBEW. Sarah Nelson did not run for, um, any like, high office in the AFL-CIO, although I think a lot of people wanted her to. I think she would have been great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Liz Schuler. I think, was a secretary-treasurer before she became the president. She's the first woman okay. president of the AFL-CIO. Um, I think it's, you know, business as usual there, and I don't even mean that in, like, a, a mean or offensive way. I just think, like, they are saying the course their big focus will probably be getting biden reelected and other mm. um legislation that they think will positively um affect union members in their day to day and i'm guessing they've you know made a calculation that this is not um relevant to the vast majority of their members or important or again worth jeopardizing the important relationships they feel like they have
2: Right. Well, I'm, I'm curious because, like, uh, Sarah Nelson seems to be more on the, the Sean Fain uh, end of things. Um, and to have, you know, the AFL-CIOs, it's, it's, I mean, UA, UAW is huge, but AFL-CIOs is just a massive, uh, you know, coalition of, of workers. What do you think it would mean uh, to have someone at that level who is calling for things like a, a ceasefire and in general taking a more militant posture towards the, the political class?
0: I mean, I think that would be amazing. I mean, that would be huge because it's not just like, it's not like the AFL is like a big union or something. The AFL represents the vast majority of unions. So that would be like saying, you know, all of our members are, are we are speaking for all of our members when we're saying we are calling for a ceasefire, which means we are speaking for the vast majority of union members and we're willing to take action around this. And that would be huge. I don't foresee that happening, um, for, you know, quite some time. Um, not currently, not under the current leadership, not in this moment. Um, but I think that's something that we should be thinking about and working towards because it's also not really just about like making a statement, like, Okay, yeah, the AFL-CIO calls for a ceasefire. Well, what does that really mean? Does that mean they're going to encourage their member unions to uh, get their workers in motion to like stop production around the country? um, To like, you know, the ILWU back in the day like wouldn't unload um, goods from South Africa during apartheid. So, like, is that what? the AFL-CIO would be pushing um, their member unions to do to take some big action because that would be amazing. If it's just like to, you know, say the words, that's cool, I guess, but it's it's less meaningful.
2: Mm. Well, that's actually a good segue to, to my next question. Um, you uh, interview Alex Press in the, in the In These Times piece who uh, has a really interesting uh, bit about the – the uh, UAW in the 1970s and the Arab Workers Caucus. Uh, what can you tell us about the, the history of that that formation?
0: I don't know too too much about it. She's I'm obsessed with her. She's way more knowledgeable than <laughs> I am. Uh, she's amazing. I just know that there was a formation of um, Arab UAW members who pushed the union to um, take a position around Israel and Palestine, and the union did not do that. Um, and I think it was like a pretty like ugly, nasty fight. Um, but that's really all I know. Um, so I also would like to learn more, but one thing that I think is interesting coming out of what the UAW said and their call for a ceasefire, it's not just that they're supporting a ceasefire. It's that they're going to like convene people in the union around what a just transition would look like for people who work in the defense industry, because they Mm. uh, represent workers who create weapons that are used in war. And so if you're calling for a ceasefire and you're calling for an end to war more generally, you're also calling for your members to be out of work essentially. And so I think it's really brave and amazing that they're saying like, we want to explore what the future of our our members' work could look like if it's not, um, you know, doing war. And I, I'm really curious to see the future of that.
2: Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, back in the 70s, even into the 80s, um, defense conversion was more of a, a mainstream issue. You had even liberal Democrats talking about, you know, we need to wind down the American empire and, and find a way to have... An economy that's relying on other stuff, um, but Palestine, Israel—that was a, a much more of a hot button issue. And you, so you had this Arab Workers Caucus, and again, I'm just looking from the uh, the article and, and Alex's quote about how in 1973 they were talking about divestment from Israeli bonds, uh, which you know, very very brave stance to take in in the 1970s. Um, How how do you think that has changed over the past uh, 30, 40 years, particularly with with late American labor um, standing up on the behalf of of Palestinians and against the Israeli apartheid? How how have attitudes shifted on that?
0: I mean, I think it's really slow going. I think this is the first... Time in my lifetime that I've really noticed, like, wow, unions are really like it, really does feel like a shift is occurring. And I think part of that is just because the labor movement right now is being like reinvigorated. There are tons of young people who are forming unions, joining unions, supporting unions. Like, unions are at their highest support rate um, ever right now since, like, I don't know, for the past 70 years. Um, And I think people see them as one of the only vehicles for real change in our society. And so that's not just about like the workplace. It's also about everything else in our lives. And so I think people are like trying to use their unions as vehicles to change the world. And like we're seeing that with all of these reform slates popping up and we're not really seeing – this, like the support for Palestine, as much in unions that kind of take like an old school, you know, look at these things. It's more of the unions that have gone through like, you know, democratic revivals lately, like the UAW and, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union also put out a call for a ceasefire. I think it was their vice president who uh, participated in a big demonstration. I think. In, in or right outside Chicago about this. And, you know, their union went through a huge transformation over the last, you know, couple decades. And I think that paved the way for them to be able to be bold on this issue.
1: Can we talk about uh, obstacles for a second? Something I've been thinking about with regards to this is how, you know, if you merely speak out against Israel, right now, you'll be met with the full force of the uh, the establishment and the status quo, right? It'll be, it'll be treated like an existential threat, um, which is interesting, given uh, that merely symbolically protesting only accomplishes so much. I think union organizing, obviously, has a historical precedent for for you know being able to actually leverage some sort of. Uh, power against the uh the support that our country has for israel right now or for any state you know in a situation like this uh but i guess what what i'm curious about is i, I feel like the average american might not really have an understanding that this is more than just a protest right because it's it it'll be a it'll be a Admonished in in the media the same way as you know a bunch of people meeting in in you know in Times Square or whatever. Uh, w- is it possible to get to a general strike from here? And does the <laughs> sort of like defanged nature of the AFL CIO sta- represent some sort of obstacle to getting to that?
0: I'm I'm kind of a curmudgeon about the general strike call. Like, obviously, it would be really great if there was a general strike, but the union density in this country is at 10%. So it's just the, we, we are, although I was, you know, talking a big game about how there's like a revitalized labor movement, and there is, we are still very, 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 very weak, um, very disengaged, and a general strike. I mean, if you've ever taken workers out on strike, you know how hard it is. And thinking about taking the majority of workers in this country out on strike is just unfathomable to me. I mean, it's a dream and it's a dream that we should work towards because we should be constantly organizing everywhere we go and um, talking to workers. And again, like who knows, you know, there are uh, decades when weeks happen, weeks when decades happen, it's impossible to truly predict, but right now I I feel like that's quite far away but I will say that obviously like you said um, speaking out against Palestine has like very very real consequences and I think people are seeing that I mean even in Hollywood with like actors like Susan Sarandon you don't a lot of people don't think of them as workers but like these are workers who are actually getting, blacklisted. And these are like the most beautiful and most talented and most famous people in the world. So it's like, if they're getting in trouble, the rest of us are going to get in trouble too. And actually that's why one of the reasons why union members are so important and strategic because um, they have more security in their jobs uh, than other people do. And they have more of an ability for the most part to, um, you know, speak out about these issues and live a life outside of work. But it's definitely a really serious concern. I think there's, like, you know, a, a legitimate culture of, you know, uh, it, of fear, like the fear is rational, because we're all seeing people get fired or asked to resign or whatever. Um, and that's why like, it's really important for people to unionize so they can have that protection in the workplace. To have political opinions and not like get found out and get fired like you know many of us have profiles on canary mission it's it is quite scary for your current employment your future employment for anyone to google you but also like the the other option is doing nothing which is just not possible in my opinion
1: right cynthia nixon's been in the mix yeah
0: yeah, she was supporting, I'm not sure if she was actually on hunger strike, but she was at the strike, um, the hunger strike at the White House last week, um, speaking out about it. And she said, you know, what when I was watching the live stream um, on Friday, um, what she was saying really moved me, that she was a union member for 45 years, and the point of unions is to be in solidarity, and for like the little guy to stand up to the big guy. Um, like the person with fewer resources to stand up with someone with more resources. And she said like, and that's what's happening. That's what Palestine is doing in Israel. Like, you know, Palestinians are trying to stand up for themselves in with a country that has just, you know, endless access to resources and weapons while they have nothing. And I was just like, wow, that, that is so obvious and so true. But like, that is what unions are, and what union members do, and like what we have to do with all workers around the world.
2: Right. I mean, as for the the general strike, I definitely think uh, getting Israeli generals to go on strike is a is a good goal to have. Um, but on the uh, UAW uh, strategy now, um, you note that the one of the suggestions I believe from from Sean Fain is that. Uh, unions, I guess all unions, um, he, he thinks, should try to align their contracts to all expire in 2028. Uh, can you tell us what the significance of that would be and what, what kind of bargaining power would that would that achieve?
0: Yeah. I mean, that would be so amazing. I mean, we saw with the big three, um, their strike um, a couple months ago now, feels like forever ago at this point. Um, yeah, But that was the first time I think in history that all of the three Big three companies went out on strike together, um, and we saw like just how crazy that was. And you know, especially the the um, stand up strike model, where like different uh, factories and plants were going to be called to join the strike um, at at different times, and there would be like no notice about you know what company, where, um, and like it seemed like the. Companies that were like bargaining well were like rewarded for good behavior, and like they wouldn't get more plants on strike. And the companies that were bargaining badly um, and like not in good faith, they their uh, factories would get called to go out on strike. So I thought that was so cool, so amazing. I'd never seen anything like that in my lifetime. And just thinking about that on a larger scale, with like you know every industry or more than just the auto industry, other industries all. Also um, potentially going out on strike at the same time, you're, you could really bring, you know, the, the capitalist class to their knees because all the workers could be out of work. And again, mm-hmm. like I said, only 10% of this country is union. And that is a really significant barrier for like, uh, a mass labor movement, but still like you know, three is better than one and four is better than three and five is better than four and so on and so on. And I think that's how we grow. And I think it also shows non-union workers the power of being union and the power of bargaining. And I think that's what UAW has been, is like doing in their kickoff of this campaign to organize um, non-union auto workers. Cause they're saying, look what we won uh, with the big three, we can do the same with your companies,
2: right? That's what I wanted to ask about as well. Because I mean, part of the reason the the coming out for a ceasefire felt so exciting uh, to me and to a lot of people is because the the momentum from this this stand up strike is is huge, and that this is actually a really serious uh, force in in American society. Um, what do you? You know, it's hard to make. Predictions in you know elections or even or sports, it's it's also hard to make predictions with with organized labor. But but what do you foresee with this this new campaign? I believe the the goal is one hundred fifty thousand new new union workers. Um, how do you see that going?
0: I mean, I have no reason to believe it won't be successful. I mean, I think it's complicated in places in the South where um, right. the UAW has lost before, but. I feel like we're in a totally different time period, even though that was only a few years ago. Um, And the UAW is different. Like it's really new and improved. Um, And I think the um, propaganda they're putting out is amazing. Like their comms um, led by Jonah Furman is so good. And like all of their videos are just amazing. Like I think they're really reaching people. Um, and I, I just, I think they'll be successful. I mean, maybe it won't be immediate and takes a while because we live in a country that, you know, doesn't protect workers and they're organizing. But I think people, people see corporate greed in a different way. Now people are really struggling and people see what the UAW won and they want that for themselves.
2: Right. Um, well, as we're winding down here, I, I, we've kind of gone over this, but I think it's important to get this in like a, like a bite sized sort of, um, thing you're able to, to say to people, because I think, you know, a lot of people see this, uh, in the United States and say, well, UAW, auto workers, Palestine, what, what do these two things have to do with each other? Uh, what do you say to, to somebody, be it a, a union member or an unorganized just person, uh, about why this, why this is important and you should support auto workers and Palestinians at the same time?
0: Well, I think there's so many answers to that question, but I think the, the bulk of it, the root of it is that workers in this country and workers in every country deserve to be able to live, deserve to be able to provide for their families, deserve safety both in the workplace and out of the workplace. And people see can see themselves in workers all around the world. Like a Palestinian family is really no different than my family or any other family in this country. We all want to be able to like go to sleep in our homes. With the people we love, go to work to make enough money to provide for the people we love, and then like spend time with the people we love. That's all everyone wants. And our enemy is not each other; it's you know, it's the capitalist class, it's the ruling class, it's the people who profit off our labor and profit off of war. Um, that's the big general thing. And then specifically to the auto workers, like we've already talked about, there's you know, there the UAW is really strong in Michigan. Um, in Detroit, and Dearborn, where there are so many um, Arab members and Arab auto workers who are watching as their family members or their friends or just people who look and sound like them are being killed and no one cares. And it's good to know that your like fellow union members, your brothers and sisters, your siblings have your back and support you and are there for you and are going to fight for you and fight for the people who are like you
2: well said yeah, uh totally jake do you have any more uh questions
1: um no i, th- I think we pretty much covered it unless you want to get into that
2: thing about the restaurant <laughs> i'm good on that but i don't know. just <laughs> can <laughs> do good it out. uh well i think that's a, a good place to to end it uh mindy where can uh, people find you and your work
0: Um, they can follow me on Twitter, I guess. I have a website. It's just my name, MindyEiser.com. And that's also my Twitter name.
2: Great. And we will link to the In These Times article in the description. Thanks again.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Thank
1: you.